and and you have the the sheet. Okay, then you're ready. Well, good morning. Um, we'll have some paperwork every morning, but not uh, but not as much. One sheet every day after this, um, except maybe for the songs. What uh, I want to, uh, and I'm gonna. Grab, I think, if I can get away with it, if I can grab this thing down, if I put it back and promise to do that, the music stand. Whoa. Stand up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Glad to be here. Um, I'm here with my wife, Patricia, who's over here on the right, who's, uh, or my right, your left, um, the front row, who's a retired speech pathologist. Um, you won't know that by the way I talk, but you know, she's, she's tried with me. Um, and I'm glad to be here. The, uh, I'm a California, California native. Um, grew up in going to SoCal camp meeting and from Central California. And these mountains hold a special place a little further south. My, uh, at, over the long period of my uh, family's history with my parents, they had a cabin at Wawona near the camp there for many years. And then in my time, I was the youngest, had a cabin over at June Lake on the eastern side of the Sierras. And so, it, uh, and, uh, so I spent a lot of time in these mountains. And uh, Dallin Rose, who's, who's here, um, and I share something. I don't know what our multiple cousin relationship is, fourth or third or something, but we are descendants of, uh, of a, a man named John Grigsby and his family who came here in 1845, not across the mountains, not far from here, and entered Sacramento on September 30 of 1845 when it was still under Spanish rule, participated in the Bear Flag Revolt, and kind of spread out from there. And I don't know when my part of the family um, became Adventist, but it was around the turn of the century. And I know my, my grandfather, when I say my grandfather, I'm, I'm 60 years old, so I was born when my parents were 44, and for whatever reason, they tended in our family to have children late, uh, which my, my wife and I continued that trend a little bit. But they, uh, they had children late, and um, so we spread out. So my grandfather actually went to Hillsburg College as a young man and drove... Um, a buggy and a, and a wagon for John Loughborough as he'd go around and preach and do uh, evangelistic series. So our ties go back that far. I am, as uh, Jane said, the general counsel for Loma Linda. I'm an attorney. I actually have a private practice uh, in, in Corona, California, where I've been, but all my whole career I've represented Loma Linda and a number of other Adventist conferences and institutions and uh, continue that to this day, and that's both the healthcare side and the university side. The, um, I think that <coughs> we're going to, to sing in a second, but um, before that, um, just wanna, wanna talk to you about uh, what I'm gonna talk about these four mornings. I wanna talk about prayer, um, and different aspects of prayer. It will not be a comprehensive prayer uh, presentation that, that anything like that could ever happen in, in, uh, in four devotional talks. It's not going to happen, but just aspects of prayer and that kind of thing. I find, as a, as a Christian, uh, 
as, as someone uh, in the Adventist church, working for the Adventist church and that type of thing, that things sort out over time to this. There are those to either God is an intense reality or those to whom God is not. And the difference is expressed in prayer. Um, you remember when um, uh, Ananias was, was praying, or Ananias, was, uh, don't confuse the two because one didn't come to a good end. Ananias uh, uh, was praying there in Damascus and uh, the Lord showed him um, the vision of Paul, of Saul of Tarsus, and said, go talk to him. And of course, Saul was a uh, persecutor of Christians, a uh, murderous, murderous man, and, and uh, Ananias wanted no part of that and kind of told the Lord so. And, and the Lord said a very simple thing to him, behold, he prayeth, in the old King James, behold, he prays. And that said something to Ananias that, that Paul was praying, that the Lord saw him praying, heard his prayer, sent Ananias, and, the, and you know, the rest is, is a lot of the New Testament uh, and, and things that go for us today. There are just, uh, there's an intensity about that. And um, I am here 10 years later. And we're all here 10 years later. And you can look at it, you know, I don't know whether you talk about being the glass half full or half empty type of person. We're 10 years closer to the return of Jesus Christ. But that's, and that's a good thing, but we're also 10 years closer to the return of Jesus Christ and what, what has happened in the meantime. What is the status of that? And I've begun to lose, just kind of lose patience with my own complacency, with the complacency of of a people of, of, as a group and that type of thing to the, the seriousness of, of what we're looking at and whether or not we are a people of prayer. I think that first of all, beyond the acceptance of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, beyond uh, acceptance of the, of, the, of the teachings of the word that we hold and that type of thing, that the thing is that we have to first be a people of prayer. And I'm going to talk about that as we go on this morning. But before we do, and I, I picked a particular topic this morning uh, for the Jesus is the answer theme, is Jesus is our battle plan. And I would, uh, why don't you, uh, I've asked Gene to play, and we're going to go right through these. These are songs you know, the battle, the battle songs. And um, there was a time in the, uh, in the late 19th and first half of the 20th century when Metaphors of war and battle characterized popular, at least Protestant Christian thought. And uh, conquest for Christ was kind of the paradigm of evangelism. And at times, even the governmental policy of the nations of the West, that's dropped away. But the, uh, the struggles between Christ and Satan and good and evil were often cast in, in, in kind of military terms. And so we'll just go right through these and just remind you of these old songs here. And let's start with Stand Up, uh, Stand Up. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, Jesus of the cross, lift high his royal banner, yet must not suffer love, from victory unto victory, his army shall he Sound the battle cry, sound the battle cry, sing the 
foe is nigh. Raise the standard high for the Lord. Gird your armor on, stand firm, everyone. Rest your cause upon His holy word. Rouse then, soldiers, rally round the banner. Ready, steady, pass the word along. Onward, forward, shout aloud, Hosanna. Christ is captain of the mighty throne. Onward, Christian soldiers. Seems to do it for Captain calls for you, number four, in the singing, singing youth, if you remember that from your childhood. There's another task to do, there's a battle to renew, and the captain calls for you, volunteers, volunteers, rally to the throbbing drum. Shout the word, we come, we come. Volunteers, volunteers, volunteers. Christ before us, Christ behind, Christ on every side. For the rescue of mankind, unto glory That's okay. Thank you. Okay. Let's pray. Father, we've sung this morning and with, with good lungs, songs that we remember, songs that uh, have called us to you in times of, of camp meeting and youth meetings and Sabbath schools along the lines for generations now. And we thank you that you are coming soon that you call us to your side, you call us to your cause. And Lord, I just pray that in these meetings and this time together, that you empower us um, by your Holy Spirit to revive us, to lead us forth, forth from this place, to, uh, to serve with, with, with greater vigor, to shorten the time of your, of your soon coming. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So... We sang the songs, and people remember those songs, and you, you do, and uh, it's good. They don't sing those too much anymore, and uh, it, uh, some would say maybe that's okay. I don't know. I like them, and there's nothing like the Captain Calls for You, which if you were in grade school and you, they put some faltering pianist in there, you could uh, 
un, you know, kind of disrupt everything by asking for that song. Uh, but uh, anyway, but uh, that never took me down. It's the one with all the, with three or more sharps that, that'll undo me. And I don't know what it is. That's purely psychological between sharps and flats. But I'm not alone, I know, uh, in that problem. Um, Peace, not war, is kind of the byword of Christianity in, in these politically correct times. Um, and uh, that's shown by the fact we don't sing those songs too much anymore. The emphasis these days on a Savior and Lord whose law is love and whose gospel is peace, uh, to paraphrase the, the Christian Christmas anthem, O Holy Night. And yet I think these, these old battle hymns teach us something um, important. Life on this, this sinful, broken earth is threatened by evil and always shadowed by corruption, by violence, and by death, which are the byproducts of sin. And this requires a tough faithfulness out of us, um, uh, a, a faithfulness from us, a spiritual discipline that, stand, that, uh, that stands for the right, though the heavens may fall. And a um, famous statement from Ellen White that I'm sure we all learned, that the one of the world is men who cannot be bought and sold and will stand for the right, though the heavens may fall. And singing those hymns growing up taught me that witness for Christ requires alertness against temptation, um, courage to obey God against human oppression, and they planted the belief in me that Christ requires the unconditional commitment of my mind, heart, and body for a service, regardless of the consequences. And I hold that belief to this moment. I'm sure that most of you do as well. And we are, in the words of the Apostle Paul, engaged in constant spiritual warfare. Um, for our struggle, he said, is not against enemies of, of, of flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the, economic, or the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And we can't doubt that we are in that conflict when we watch our youth tempted by sophistication that's really no substitute for maturity, for our homes broken by by infidelity and divorce, our, our zeal for the Lord dimmed by material concerns and the, and the challenging truths of the gospel of Christ, compromised in the interests of comfort and security and relativism. And we know we're under attack when our friends and loved ones are ravaged by diseases and injuries that can't be cured by the best science and technologies that humans can conceive. And when we find out that we're mere consumers, pawns, to be manipulated in the financial markets of this world, when self-interest prevails over our sacrificial love in the affairs even of the church and of institutions of faith. And we're in a battle for sure, and the question is, what do we do about it? And it's axiomatic. I mean, it's just the rule that the key to battle is preparation. Um, the noise and fury of battle are disorienting. Fear can cause paralysis of mind and body, and training is necessary to obtain condition-focused responses under the worst of circumstances. I have never been in combat, and that's not a wish I think anybody would really ever, ever want in sanity, but, uh, but I, have, 
um, lived, when I was growing up, the National Guard used on the hill, one, one valley over from us there along the Central California coast, the National Guard used to train, and they'd be shells, they'd be running through the woods, uh, playing war games and shooting each other and shells and everything, and the noise is enormous. Um, and that was just a small Sunday exercise for the, uh, for the for National Guard and training. But the noise is ferocious. You've seen, um, you know, films that, that contain this kind of thing. And, and under that kind of noise and that disorientation and stress, people come apart very easily. And that's why the military trains and trains and trains and trains. Because it, it, it has to come down to a reaction. It's the, it's the hope that, that the, the memory of that training will kick in. I mean, there, there are statistics to show, that people study, that... Uh, you know, most, if, if you take somebody under stress with a, with a rifle out in combat, they're going to miss the target just a lot of the time. And so you just get a lot of bullets in there uh, and a lot of things going if you want to do the job. But people have to kind of hold their ground and, and react in, in a way that maybe their mind wouldn't tell them to. I, if you study the, the history of, of Medal of Honor winners, uh, courageous, courageous things. Not all of them were like Desmond Doss, who really did have a very considered kind of plan for moving those stretchers down at Okinawa, the, the Adventist Medal of Honor winner, was the medic. Move them down. A lot of these, these in combat, like Sergeant York in World War I, was just uh, reacting. He remembered how he shot turkeys in, in uh, Tennessee, and that's how he chose to treat the, the Germans coming down uh, in, the, in their charges. He'd shoot the, the, uh, the ones behind first so that the ones in front would keep coming. And, uh, but, you know, it, that's made up stuff on the place. Courage is not something you can really plan for in advance. You can train, you can hope it will work out that way. But courage is not something, you can't sit down. You're never going to go to a seminar and this is how you have courage. You just don't know hypothetically. It's when you're, you're in, the, uh, in the, the thick of it that, that courage counts. And there's a, there's a personal approach to battle. Uh, soldiers and sailors... Uh, uh, bond through the shared demands of their training and, and camaraderie on leave. And as battle approaches, they do different things. Uh, some read the Bible and, and some eat a favorite meal and listen to music or gamble or obsessively clean weapons or, or clean and check equipment and uh, write letters home. How do you prepare for battle? I can tell you I'm an attorney, and this is something that, uh, that I'm into um, from time to time. Can't, it's, the, it's the professional uh, obligation. And generally, I try to gain all the information I can, all the information I can about the issue under dispute and about my adversary. And then I methodically organize and refine those points. And uh, I think about what my adversary may say and, and or do and I consider what my responses may be um, and I know and, and there's another thing you learn as an attorney and the way I've described it is not entirely the way it is you make your best case you you've tried to figure out your case and make it if you worry a lot about the other side's case you're going, to, you're going to state their case, or you're going to have it stated twice. They're going to say it, and you're going to say what their case is or is not, and it kind of reinforces You make your best case, and that's a good rule spiritually as well, is to make the best case, because there's not a whole lot of, of uh, 
to be gained about, you know, studying the strategies of, of, of Satan in order to uh, pronounce Christ. Um, back in, when I was a freshman year in college, a uh, pastor told me one time, uh, and I believe this comes from the Desire of Ages, that it's not necessary to study darkness to teach light. And I think that's, uh, that's, that's a good and true statement. There's a... Uh, so, I know some men and women who live their entire life as a battle. You could call them something else, adrenaline junkies, that type of thing. But they're constantly ready to take offense or, or give offense. And they, they sometimes, and often in fact, attack where there is no adversary or reason. And they create real adversaries out of friends by doing that. And then there's other people, and this is most people, they avoid battles at any cost. They expend tremendous resources and effort uh, to keep out of confrontations and conflicts to the uh, point of, of sacrificing principles for peace. Um, and uh, they just very, very quickly concede. Uh, my wife and I were recently up um, in Oregon uh, for a vacation. We were at the mouth of the, of the uh, Columbia River at Astoria, and we were at a place called Fort Stevens, and the little museum they have there there was, I saw a patch that belonged to one of the units that used to sta be stationed at that fort. And it, it said, uh, uh, concede nullus, and which means concede nothing in Latin. And so, uh, you know, there's, there's, uh, there are people that just won't do that. They'll concede everything lest they might be into a fight. And I mean everything. Um, it's important to pick the ground of battle, the location and circumstances that give the greatest advantage um, to you and, and disadvantage to the enemy. And the idea of taking the high ground was initially not an ethical idea. Well, you know, we tell people now you need to take the high ground, which means be ethical and, and, uh, and that's right. But it was initially a military concept because it's much harder to dislodge an enemy at higher ground and plus with the onslaught of things like arrows and artillery, they, you know, you have an advantage if you're shooting from, from, from higher up than your enemy. The pivotal battle of, in, uh, of, in the Civil War of Gettysburg really uh, may have been won right at the start when a, when a Union commander named John Buford rode onto that battlefield. He was a plainsman. He had, he had, he had come up through the Army fighting Indians on the plains. And he realized the importance of high ground. And he took a piece of ground that first day called Cemetery Ridge, which, which was a, uh, had, had the height elevation there as, as the, the south, as Lee moved his troops up. And uh, the second day of the battle, a place called Missionary Ridge, a knoll out in the woods right at the end of the battle line there, another um, young Union officer named Joshua Chamberlain in the 20th Maine held on in a fight that until they finally ran out of ammunition and, and actually prevailed by bayonet in the woods there. And, and that, they said, in, within less than an acre of ground in, 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 in a fight that was about 45 minutes long, uh, 45 minutes to an hour long, there were about 50,000 bullets flying in a confined area that really wasn't much larger than, than what we're talking about, uh, you know, right in the ground we're sitting here. And not the whole camp. The camp's large here. But... So it was, uh, and uh, so, but again, they had the high ground, and that was the importance. You keep that ground, you, you, you win the battle, you give up that ground, you lose the battle. Um, so as an attorney, I always look for opportunities to shift the burden of proof to the other side. 
and this is my equivalent of taking the high ground in battle. Uh, bluster, outrage, and rhetoric are cheap. There's one lawyer that writes letters to Loma Linda periodically, and they will inevitably go on 14, 15 pages long, and they'll inevitably be outraged, and I've taken two, and my colleagues kind of uh, my, well, they don't kind of, they do laugh at this. I just always respond, Dear Greg, received your letter. I see that you're outraged. I'm sorry, Kent. Nothing ever happens. Uh, you know, he never does anything after that. So anyway, the, uh, the, uh, <clears throat> so people yell a lot. And it makes for great quotes and sound bites, but where is the evidence for what's claimed? And the assumption that the, uh, the assumptions of the most clever argument always require proof. Um, otherwise, you know, one can sway the jury, but will likely lose the appeal where the courts more soberly look at the law applied to the facts. And it's safe to say that all of us will face a battle sometimes so long as we are alive and moving. I had a, a lady in her 60s one time. Uh, Adventist uh, physician's wife who said, Kent, I've just had such a nice life and nothing's happened to me and uh, I just don't know. I mean, I'm totally untested. And uh, I sat there and listened to her. Her husband at one point, not long before, had lost his his, uh, medical license in some disgrace. Her her son was... um, I think still living at home and had his fifth or sixth degree in, in, uh, in something and was not going anywhere with it. Uh, a lot of stuff was going on, plus there was, there was uh, serious illness that present. And I thought, how possibly can you see that you know, you, your life is unmarked and unchanged? And she wasn't saying, I have a great inner peace. She was saying, I don't think I will really have the strength and peace when it comes. Well, I couldn't figure out you know, when she thought that was. She was under, under combat right then. But it, it's, uh, you know, our, our battles don't fight typically hand-to-hand combat, and we certainly hope that's, that will never happen. But disagreements, misunderstandings, oppression, struggles of various kinds. Um, all of us, I'm sure, have personal battles with certain besetting sins of, another, of one kind or another, which is the struggle. If you ask me, I would tell you that the battle of my life is really with anger. And I tell you, if the battle of your life is with anger and you're, you're an attorney, it's like being, I think, a, probably a recovering alcoholic and tending bar for a living. But, it's, uh, but uh, the Lord is, is faithful and good, and, and uh, there's a lot of work in that, but it's a battle worth winning. Um, but whatever our abilities and our personalities and our resources, can you and I accept the proposition that God has a battle plan for us and that's what Second Chronicles 21 to 29 is all about. And I handed you the text this morning so you could follow along. This is what I was using as the uh, English Standard Version, and that's what you have in there. In that text, the armed forces of three nations, uh, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Munites, have united together to fight King Jehoshaphat in Judah. And they're invading from the south, and the, and the situation is extremely dangerous. Because Jehoshaphat had a foreign policy and a defense policy, and it was primarily directed toward preventing an attack on Israel from the north, along what we'd call the area of Lebanon today, and and coming from that direction. So he's developed a substantial army, and he has stationed the troops in various fortified cities uh, throughout the Judah, but concentrating on that northern border. 
And the force marching against Judah is described as a great horde and is moving fast. And you may know what it's like when problems of health or finance or uh, relationships, other struggles accumulate with an overwhelming force of trouble. A great horde comes moving above you, uh, around you. You just feel totally overwhelmed. And the attack that faced Joshua and Judah was treacherous because the invading nations were ones who had been spared from destruction. Now, they, they, they shouldn't have been, but were spared from destruction when the Israelites entered the Promised Land. And it's especially disheartening when someone to whom we've shown friendship and mercy turns on us. That can just take the heart out of you. Joshua's afraid, and he calls all the people together to fast and to seek the Lord in prayer. And that's a marvelous strategy that we too often ignore when facing disaster. Uh, we should use prayer as our first resort to God before starting anything. That was Jesus' example. That is the example of Scripture. But we have been fed a lot of things over time, like you do your part and then God will do his part. And, you know, whatever part you think you're bringing to this, we have a God, and we're not that God. Um, and we say, well, you know, I, I do what I can, then God does what he can. Well, I will guarantee that our clay matched with his iron is going to crumble. Why not let him be all iron for us and go to him first and, and embrace him as our very life, which is what we're, we're, we're offered there. So we go to the prayer as a first resort to seek his guidance and, to, and, our, and his help in our time of need. And we usually rely on our own cleverness and strength until we finally realize that they're not enough, and then we play, pray as a last resort. And I'm always amazed, you know, I've represented institutions for a long time. Um, um, Larry Moore is here, who's, who's long... Uh, uh, career in both the pastorate and in conferences work, and, and he'll, he, you know, uh, he'll know what I'm talking about. A lot of you will. It's like the last rite. Well, we've done everything we can, and that hasn't worked out so much, so why don't we pray now? And that's really faithless. I call that functional atheism. You know, that, well, you know, it's nice, and it's a good bumper sticker, but we're not going to do that. Uh, we're, we'll, we'll, we'll wait till we, uh, you know, try to work it out ourselves, and then, then hope he can bail us out. And uh, the Lord sometimes often does because he takes, he takes pity and mercy on us. But it would be so much better to go into the battle with him than, uh, than, than, than call him up from the back units when we're, we're running out of uh, resources. Because God desires to be our plan A, not our plan B. And with God as our plan A, we don't really need a plan B. The, the, the psalmist states this plainly in, in uh, Psalm 46.1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, or in times of trouble. A very present help. Joshua leads the people here in a prayer of faith, and he reminds God of his power and of his promises uh, to his children, and he ends with an honest confession of the Lord. Uh, and this is in, in uh, about verse 12 in what you have there on the sheet. We are powerless against this great multitude that's coming against us, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We are powerless against this great multitude. It's hard to pray a prayer like that in our human pride. We say, when am I powerless? Just tell me what to do. Well, you know, we are powerless. 
but we have a great God. I mean, that's the whole story of the cross, the resurrection, the life that, that Christ offers us, that, that, uh, that, that, that when we're weak, we learn, we sing it in Jesus loves me, this I know. He is, we are weak, but he is strong. So, we are powerless against this great multitude that's coming against us. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Now, the Spirit of the Lord falls upon a man standing in the middle of the praying congregation. It's a Levite named Jehaziel. And you know, Jehaziel stands for something. There's always somebody, any one of us, that the Spirit of the Lord could speak to and work through. Jehaziel doesn't appear again in Scripture, and he didn't really appear before. Um, but he's, he's, a, he's a devoted believer standing in the multitude there, and God pours through him. And he delivers the Lord's battle plan for the people. It's uh, verses 20, 15 to 17. He said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not uh, be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Zeus. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Now, what do you think about this plan? There's no discussion of the strength of the enemy or how many men are in the invading armies, and the nature of their weaponry. The lack of military intelligence is, is kind of disturbing, or would be to the, to the human flesh and blood facing it. I mean, it doesn't get any worse than for us to face an adversary intent under destruction without knowing the capabilities of that adversary. I've recently um, been talking to someone who's going through a, a kind of horrendous um, family situation, domestic situation, and child custody battle and that kind of thing. And the other side is bringing considerable resources of various kinds to that fight in a, in a very difficult and hard way. And I'm not, a, I'm not an attorney in the case. I'm just kind of counseling because right, I don't do domestic uh, family law. But, it's, uh, but anyway, in, in going through that, and, you know, what I've explained to them is, you know, you're up against something a lot more than you see here, and they're bringing to bear, have you thought about this, this, and this? And no, they hadn't. And I said, they're, they're bringing something. We like to know, but a lot of times we just don't know. The place of the likely battle is also a problem. Uh, the ascent of Zeus refers to a pass from the northwest shore of the Dead Sea up to the plateau of the Negev Desert. And it's a rocky barren canyon. Uh, it's no place of any great description. It's just a rocky, barren way you could get up from, from the, the desert floor up to the plateau. And its name, Zeus, refers to a great bird of Jewish mythology. So the whole thing's kind of bizarre. In other words, it's an unlikely and inconvenient place for a battle. Um, and, you know, our battles find us in unlikely and inconvenient places. Um, most of our battles come from unfortunate timing and in places we would never pick, like kitchens and family rooms and offices and hospital rooms and boardrooms. And Solomon wrote about this in Ecclesiastes 9:11 to 12. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the, to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, 
nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to the skillful, but time and chance happen to them all. For no one can anticipate the time of disaster. Like fish taken in a cruel net, and like birds caught in a snare, so mortals are snared at the time of calamity when it suddenly falls upon them. So the enemy confronting Judah is fierce, the ground of battle's bad, the timing's off, and information is lacking. And in the face of these problems, the defensive tactic of Jehoshaphat, as brought to him by Jehaziel, seems preposterous. It seems like sheer lunacy. Do something. That's always our temptation. Do something, do something, do something, rather than wait on the Lord. And Joshua says, listen to me, O Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets. That's a famous line. We've, we know that well, I think, as Adminus. Um, then at the front of his army, does Jehoshaphat place his best chariots? His skilled swordsmen, his archers? No. Jehoshaphat places his choir in the lead. The, the, the army of Judah will march into battle, led by the tenor section. And do you believe that any battle you face in public or private will be won by your strength and ability, or do you believe the battle is won by the Lord? You know the right answer. And the real question is, do you believe it? And do you believe it enough to fall in line behind the tenors, the basses, the sopranos, and the altos as they march into the battlefield, or to be one of those singing? Because that's a call on us to do that. Um, Do we really believe that? Would we walk in singing praises to the Lord rather than doing everything we can and getting you know, the, the, the best people we can lined up and everything else to take on this fight? The choir of the story marches out, out of the city, leading the army across the desert into the Pass of Zeus, singing this simple chorus, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Thanking God, he has love, the love lasts, and we take our stand on the ground of his love. And don't be misled, those lyrics pack a punch. They acknowledge that the Lord deserves gratitude because his love won't quit. That's the great thing about gratitude. It goes hand in hand with faith. Gratitude admits someone else is responsible. We should be a thankful people exactly for that because it's, it's, a, it's, it's a way to honor God and to tell the truth. And... This is the truth, that and, and the other thing it, the, those lyrics say is that his love won't quit no matter what happens. And this is the truth that allows us to face every day and every battle with assurance. And the choir sings these lyrics in four-part harmony all across the desert. It's a tremendous demonstration of the faith to sing of the Lord's love when you're marching to battle across a barren desert where there's not much cover, there's nothing to sustain you, you just have to go. And the choir doesn't even seem to care that the enemy hears them coming. And as they continue singing their praises, God causes these invading armies to fall upon each other and kill each other. And by the time the choir leads this army of Judah through the pass, the battle is over. And we are to enter battle, praising God, not complaining, bickering, or arming ourselves to the teeth, not obsessively planning strategy, working out contingencies, we're called to enter battle by praising God for who he is and thanking him for his love. Now, if the battle is the Lord's from the start, and why does he have the people march out to the passive seas? Why doesn't he just tell them to stay home and enjoy their day off? 
The fact that this story is even recorded in the pages of Scripture tells us one reason. The singers have eyes and ears, and they can see what's happening, and they can tell about it. They're prepared to be witnesses to what God is doing for his people, what God has done for his people. And century later, I'm standing in this tent in South Lake Tahoe, California, on this late July morning, and we're talking about it. Uh, their report still encourages and strengthens God's people. And another reason that the choir and the army following it uh, arrive on the scene to, uh, well, another reason that it's there is that the choir and the army show up and what they find is a vast army arrayed against them of dead men. Not a single army, not a single officer or soldier in the army of Judah can claim that the, his actions had anything to do with winning the battle. Soldiers like to boast. And there was nothing they could boast about here that they had done. They could boast about their God, and that was it. And this is God's victory, and not even a great self-aggrandizing ego or egomaniac can claim, dare claim any hero's role in it. There is one story, and only one story for them to tell. There are eyewitnesses to it, and they can only give praise to God for what he had done. And so what are you going to do when you face your next attack? Sulk, counterattack, run away, muster up your favorite bazooka quotes from Scripture in the spirit of prophecy, and fire away at will? On a day when Jesus' authority was severely questioned with the demand that he do something, he prayed, I thank you, Father, and this is Matthew eleven twenty-five to 30, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon, me, upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus acted upon this counsel himself for all of us. We went to the cross without protest cried out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, and said those glorious words, it is finished. And that gives us assurance that the ultimate battle does belong to the Lord, and he has already won it for us. And then he bowed his head, gave up his spirit. You know, it says he breathed his last. That's always touched me. He breathed his last because he gave up everything to the Lord. From there on, it was going to be the power of God that resurrected him that gave him life. Because we know before he even ascended to heaven, he appeared again in the earth in multiple ways and places and talked to his disciples. So he really didn't breathe his last. He breathed his last as the man Jesus. You know, are we fully, fully divine, fully human is our belief. And he, he, he was breathing on the power of God. That is what's offered to each one of us too. Are you breathing on the power of God? So here's the model battle plan given us in 2 Chronicles 20 and Matthew 11, when enemies surround you and your soul is weary and tormented by heavy burdens. Prepare by seeking the Lord in fervent prayer. It doesn't have to be a lot of words, but it has to be heartfelt. Lord, this is it. Nothing, nothing. Is your all on the altar, an old song that I've always loved. 
as you're all on the altar of sacrifice, lay your heart to the spare control. For you cannot have rest or be perfectly blessed until all on the altar is laid. And when you arise from your knees, leave your concerns at the foot of the cross. Leave them there. And walk on through with Jesus. Join the choir in, in number three and enter the battle singing loudly and clearly. Clearly, you can sing praises. You don't have to join a choir. Sometimes there's no choir to be had, but you can still sing those praises. Um, give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. And then fourth in the little battle plan here of, of, of uh, Judah and, and Jesus, be alert and ready for the victory of the Lord on your behalf. Because it will come. It is promised. It is assured. And Jesus gave his very life for that. And he was resurrected by the love and the glory of the Father, Romans 6.4, to, 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 to life again in us with him. And I'll reduce this down even further. Whether it's not the cosmic final battle between God's love and Satan's evil, that it's the end of Earth's history, or the problems and conflicts that await you back home, or the doubts and struggles in your heart this morning, every battle, every battle plan comes down to a who, not a what. If God be for us, who can stand against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Christ before us, Christ behind, Christ on every side. For the rescue of mankind on the glory ride, our ultimate battle plan is trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're just, uh, we're coming to the end here and end of our hour, but would just like if, uh, Jane, if you would uh, just sing, there's, uh, I gave you those prayer songs, and, and by the way, either leave those in the chair on the way out, because we'll use them every day, or if you think you can bring them back, bring them back. But this, uh, this little chorus, all the time I was preparing for up here this time, songs go through my mind and heart. And, uh, and this one that I used to sing at Soquel Camp Meeting as a teenager uh, really moved me. And it kind of expresses, I think, where we are as God's people. So I have a longing in my heart for Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Lord, to me. It's on the sheet, too.
Jesus, Jesus, Lord, to me, Master, Savior, Prince of Peace, Ruler of my heart today, Jesus, Lord, to time. Jesus, Jesus, Lord, Master, Savior, Prince of Peace, Ruler of my heart today, Jesus, Lord, heads. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the kindness of your great love, your steadfast love that endures forever, and we thank you for it. And I just pray that from this, this tent this morning will be taken the message of that battle that day out in the plains, in the desert plains, in the southern part of Judah, that the battle really does belong to you, and you want it for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And may we claim it, may we live it, Lord, more importantly. May you, through Jesus, be our very, very life. You are our righteousness. You are the truth in which we stand, and the way and the life. And so we thank you for this, and I pray blessing on each one here this morning as we go on for the rest of the day and over this encampment. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.